under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Oh, welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Oh, what a weekend. What a weekend. And what a Monday thus far. You know, the news, honestly, is a little slow. There's been the back and forth on this call by the president about Sergeant Lord David Johnson. Johnson's widow is now speaking out, said she found, well, Trump's call to be rude or disrespectful. And... You know, I thought it was a private conversation, but in this day and age, nothing really is private. And really, the theme of the show is to try to bring out private conversations in the public arena. And a big part of what I've been thinking about and where I'm going, and my guest alongside me tonight is 84, otherwise known as Clay. I'm just going to call you Clay. That's fine. We can stop with the silly radio (laughs) handles. Everybody already knows who you are, Mr. Sharp. Uh, Is that, you know, you can, last week, look to the stars. We can achieve incredible things. Look how amazing the internet is and just everything going on around us technologically and the way we can care for one another. We're living longer. We have incredible food to eat, all sorts of options, games to play, whether sports or uh, video games to watch or play them ourselves. I mean, there's so much out there in this world. It's incredible. So many opportunities. You'd think this is the best time to be alive. And I think it is. But the dark side of life is real. And it's so often the the voice in our head that sort of calls us to, to the abyss. It's like, okay, here's this negative thing. And you, you want to screw up life in some way. And you focus on the negative. And so in the midst of all these incredible things, like we just had this shooting, this drive-by shooting that just happened here in Montgomery, you're like, why would, what place do you have to be in to go and just shoot somebody? Like, and apparently it started in the courtroom and somebody took it out to the streets and immediately went to the gun. But for me, where I'm coming from these days is how does the role of myth play in our lives? And usually you hear that word with modern ears, myth, mythical things. And you think it's something lesser, something not true. And I tend to disagree that I think myth is one of the most important things, the narratives, these deep ones we can't necessarily prove are the most important things in our life. Sort of give us purpose and place in the world. That that is such a deep question. It really is, and there, there's so many tentacles to this, because I, I think where we are, uh, for one thing, we are so prosperous, and we have such little things to be concerned about. Right. I mean, you think back uh, 100, 150, you, re- you really don't have to go back. You go back to the Great Depression. Right. I mean, people are taking flour sacks and taking the sacks and making clothes out of them hand sewing them i mean that's where they lived and now you know 
you get a hole in your sock, you just go buy another sock. You would not dare think about stitching your sock up. We're, we're so prosperous, and we all feel like, well, man, I'm poor because we're looking at the guy beside us that's driving a brand-new Mercedes-Benz. But, I mean, we've all got, you know, a vehicle or maybe even two vehicles. We're so prosperous, we have such little to worry about that is you know keeps us alive right it's not something that is necessary we we may contort it and feel like that's necessary i've got to have a tv in my bedroom and in my den when actually you don't have to have a television at all you don't have to have a cell phone these right. things are i mean they're they're ruining us and we don't even have to think anymore we're if coming too reliant on technology yeah, yeah if you want to know something you just google it well and that's where i'm worried is that we're losing the sort of uh myths to the latest fad and so if you look at our founding myths as a country in many ways you know what are the aspirations of the nation um, is it liberty is our cornerstone? Is it our highest ideal? I think most people believe in liberty, but it's not their highest political ideal. Some people think equality, not just in terms of rights and liberties, but equality in terms of well-being is a highest ideal. I had somebody telling me that this weekend, that inequality is our biggest problem. Wealth inequality. Inequality is our biggest problem. And it makes me go, okay, what are our founding myths what drives you at the end of the day to believe in this or that ideal and how you're going to organize your own life and organize society? And over the weekend, there are two arenas that I was grabbing from in order to kind of understand the power of myth-making. Of course, sports allows us to create all sorts of myths and stories about people. Like, think of Bo Jackson. What a mythical character in so many ways, like the abilities that guy had, how he would amaze coaches and his peers time and time again and often amaze himself. And it was just a matter of, you know, how well, hard-headed isn't the word, but he was driven. He was very driven. And so I'm sitting there. Focused. Focused is another way. But it, it's almost like he knew his mind could make his body do anything. He knew his willpower was there and that his body would allow until, well, that one day it didn't. Or he was so strong he tore his hip out of his socket or something. Yeah, he like pulled, he pulled, he, they were playing the, he was playing for the Los Angeles Raiders mm. and he, he just, it looked like a simple tackle. He, they were playing the uh, uh, Cincinnati Bengals and the guy just grabbed his leg and instead of, falling down and getting tackled he attempted to pull his leg out of the guy's arms and he absolutely pulled his hip out of socket and the doctor said that's not possible you can't james andrew said you cannot do that and both said i heard i heard it pop out wow. and that's what he did and it, that's that's he physically was so strong and his mind said no, I can pull my leg out, and that's what he did or attempted to do. And his body was like, "No, you can't do, you know, what you thought you could do." Well, and that's where myths are really created in our in our midst. That somebody like Bo Jackson comes along, you're like, "That's not possible," but it was possible for him. Yeah, in, on so many fronts. And then 
but the two things I experienced this weekend, of course, coming back and seeing my old classmates at our 10th year reunion, we had our own little myths and like, Damn. you know, our, our story. Yeah, our 10 year <laughs> class reunion. And, you know, what our teachers sound like. And it was funny to me that people from different perspectives would tell the story in different ways. Um, that they, you know, were sitting in a different part of the classroom, they heard it a little differently, or they remembered it a little differently. So it's always good to get back with the folks who were there at the beginning and sort of rehash out what was it actually like, because you can start to fool yourself. But, you know, myths can be weaved around sports, but professional wrestling is self-conscious of it. Like, they know they're scripting these things, and they're telling a story over decades. So last night at their pay-per-view event, Kurt Angle came back, wrestled for the first time in 11 years. And so the myth is built around him that he won the gold medal with a broken neck, and he couldn't use painkillers or anything else, so they did cortisone shots or whatever so he could wrestle and actually function. And now he's in the WWE, and, and a lot of it's entertainment. It can be soap opera or slapstick, you know, screwball humor. But occasionally you get these deep storylines built over a decade. The other thing I was watching was Lord of the Rings. And that's another arena in American uh, Anglo life. I mean, Tolkien was obviously British. But when you're working in fiction, you are self-consciously creating a myth. And that's what Tolkien did with The Lord of the Rings. He didn't just start writing the book. He had this whole, uh, essentially, mythology built up, this whole origin story of Middle-earth built up. And then he started writing these stories out of that base of language and history that he had created out of whole cloth. And really, he had grabbed from old Celtic myths and old English and these sort of things, like Beowulf. And he just... But he, he, he almost treated it like it was real. Like he was telling the actual story of something. Well, and, and see, I would go... I would go in a little bit different direction than that. I don't think that all of the old myths like what you're speaking of, I don't think they're all made out of whole cloth. No, I don't think I so. I think I... they have a bit of truth in them, and right. and, and I don't, I don't want to get you off and just tell me to shut up if you don't want to go here. If you go back to, uh, and everything that I believe in starts with, with the Bible. Right. And we read about the, the Nephilim, in Genesis, and these are when it says the sons of God came down and saw the sons of or the daughters of men, and they produced the Nephilim. Hmm. Sons of God is only they're only spiritual beings. Angels, Adam, Jesus, and the angels are only things called sons of God in the in the scriptures, and so you have this this. Superhuman species this built, and I think that's where like all the the Greek mythology and the Zeuses and all that have they been embellished? Sure, they have been, but I think they were these superhuman creatures that came from those offspring. That's the flood did away with them, and then but it also says and then thereafter in reference to the flood that there was another eruption and that's why when the children of Israel were going in the promised land said we're like crickets in their eyes we're, we're so small hmm. they were these huge human beings or 
or quasi-human being. And I think that's where the stories come from of, you know... Well, in all It's the, like if I tell you about my days playing basketball at Hooper Academy. Sure. You know, I was okay basketball player, but if you listen to me tell them now, right. dude, I was Michael Jordan. Well, and you <laughs> exaggerate certain things in order to make the story more memorable. But take, like, for instance, the Bible. Genesis has two accounts of creation. And I personally, and without having to flee from my Catholic upbringing, they would say you don't take this too literally. But see the wisdom in it and what the ancient Hebrews were getting at when they were sharing these stories. And, and there's something about being you know, made out of the earth. Adam is formed out of the earth. I mean, that's not that far from where science is taking us now. So I think these folks are carrying on these memories through stories that allow us to uh, touch on the truth, but we're not all the way there. Um, in the same way, like the flood. The flood story is in the Bible. It's in other places as well, other ancient every, stories. Every civilization has some form of a flood story yeah, exactly. getting off of a boat. Exactly. And it makes you think, man, is there some lost history here? Which lends credence to the story. Oh, I think it does lend credence to the story. But in the same way you just said, that if you told your tales of being in basketball, you're going to exaggerate. America's got this rich history of tall tales. Um, and this is where I'm trying to get people to think about why the stories we tell ourselves are the most important things in our lives. Is I think people are too much caught up on things being literally true. And let me take it away from the realm of religion, because that's such a sensitive subject, in yeah. politics. That people want these sort of stories they're reading in the news, or their interpretation of the Constitution, or their early American history, to be literally true. But if you ask any historian... I mean, they try, they have standards, and they're trying to find different sources and make sure the sources are correct. But even if you have all these sources that you've checked out and found these are facts, okay, we have the string of facts. Now, how do you weave a story together to make all the facts make sense? Yeah. So there's a part of every story we tell, even these sort of historical ones, that involves an element of creativity and sort of creating something. And I think that's the way that the mind works, yeah. that we have got to... Uh, Within our understanding, we've got to make it make sense to us. You know, if, if you're told something, even if it's just the gospel truth, you've got to be able to piece it together hmm. and make it come together to where you can comprehend it and put, and you have to fill in those gaps between the spaces where, well, we don't know exactly what happened from here to there then you have to put that together. Well, and you were right earlier to say that a lot of this doesn't come out of a whole cloth. We, I would say, are master, we human beings are master imitators. So things like the pagan gods, we're really watching nature do incredible things that were astounding to people. A lightning strike and fire happens and huge forest fires or floods or the sun moving across the sky going up and down. It's... I mean, it is baffling if you don't have any background in it. And, it's, you know, I think science has made us, allowed us a, a way of understanding those things in a more precise way. 
but science doesn't replace the role of myth in our lives. Like how important things like love are. What's your relation to the stars? What's your relation to other people who are also storytellers and imitators? And I think sometimes what happens is we imitate the stories that we are brought up with. And we create new things out of them that can be very bad. But we also sometimes keep things from the past that maybe we should shed. Here's what I mean by new things that we imitate and create. Uh, There's this political theorist, theologian named Eric Vogelin, and he talks about how Marxism is really just an imitation of, say, Christianity. Like, it has a a story, it has a creation story, a state of nature story, like we all began in small little communes, and then Marx goes through stages of history, and he has this culminating event, like Revelation, and he has this underlying purpose that gives the story and the drama and the movement towards that end state its purpose. You have these class conflicts. And it's almost a complete copy of the Christian story just flipped on its head and made materialistic. And you had people like the Nazis doing the same thing. They were taking old Norse pagan blood myths and mixing them in to how they're going to create a new society. You see it today with ISIS. They're taking their founding myths, looking at the Quran, interpreting it in a particular way, in this case, very strict and violent way. And they're saying, well, we're going to bring it about here on Earth, this global caliphate. And it's, it's where people start taking these things, I think, to the point of violence is where I say, okay, that's, you got to stop and realize you're a storyteller at the end of the day. And, and I think, I think you're 100% correct on that. But my foundation and my presupposition is that the scripture is the truth that one day Christ will return. There will be one world government. He's going to come back and there's going to be one world government and all these others and this is just my view of it. All these others are false. Hmm. And this is mankind, which is in the fallen state, is trying to create, this is Satan trying to create what God is going to do at some point. And Satan is trying to use humankind to do it. Right. But God's going to use his son in a spiritual you know, side to bring the entire world together into one world government. And that's where all the, the EU stuff, and like you said, that's mm. what Islam, they're trying to mimic. They're, they're a copycat of what I would consider truth. Now, you know, we can have different opinions, and I, I could be completely wrong. I don't think I am, but... It, if if you don't believe it, why do you, you know, I mean, well, you should right. believe what you believe. Right. And, you know, I'm more at a point of I'm trying to figure out, uh, well, belief is a funny thing. Like, you can believe, you can believe in a lot of things and they may or may not come to pass. I think the beautiful thing about that belief, is, and especially about the tale Jesus tells, is that my kingdom isn't of this earth. And it, one of the most fascinating things I've read in the last two or three weeks. This I've got pulled up right in front of you. And it's not something I would argue. Um, it's just something that's very interesting to me in the way it's argued. It's, a, it's actually a speech given by a guy named uh, Jesus Huerta de Soto. He's a Spanish um, economist, 
uh, political theorist, and he dabbles in almost everything. And he just gave a speech called God is a Libertarian. And he says the state is the true Antichrist. That is where humanity's problems lie. Um, and it's an interesting argument because he goes into saying, well, here, let me see if I can find uh, an interesting piece. And well, I'll set it up the way he does. He says, even for the atheists and the agnostics in the crowd, let's just assume God the creator, God is love is real. God of the Bible is real, just for the sake of argument. So let's clear the decks there. We're not having those arguments. God is very much real. Okay. And so he says, well, as I look at scriptures, uh, what does it mean to say that God is a libertarian? What meaning should we attribute to this phrase or expression? It means that God, the Lord of all the universe, who has created his laws from nothing and who therefore has absolute power over the earth and the rest of the universe, nevertheless, does not use force, but always leaves his creatures free. He gives them the freedom even to rebel against him. There are fallen angels, for instance. There are spiritual beings who rebelled against their creator. God leaves human beings free even to rebel against him. In this sense, human beings are more fortunate than the fallen angels, because happily, humans have been redeemed. In other words, God forgives human beings again and again, and he allows them to get up and start over. And he goes on to talk about more of the, uh, you know, the Trinity. What does that actually mean? Um, but in another part of the speech, he says, At the time of Jesus, the zealots, and the world is still full of zealots today, were crying out for the creation of an all-powerful world state. This right. Is, this is what... You bring that up. A kingdom of the Messiah who would exercise his power and impose his will on the whole world. People asked for other signs as well. When Jesus hung, crucified on the cross, they mocked him and said, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, and then we will believe in you. But Jesus, God the Son, a libertarian, did not come down from the cross. And why did he not make fire rain down, wreak devastation, and thus manifest the will of the Supreme Creator? like napalm in the Vietnam War or Donald Trump's mother of all bombs. Even apostles as beloved by the Son of God as James and John fall into this temptation when they ask Jesus for permission to call down fire from heaven and exert God's power. And this is where Professor DeSoto quotes from the Bible, find it in St. Luke chapter 9. It says, On their way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. Why this reaction? This is Professor DeSoto talking. Because God, in this case, God the Son, is a libertarian. And he goes on to quote other things, saying the kingdom of God is not from this world. Jesus himself says this to a frightened official of the Roman state who is also in charge of judging him. My kingdom is not from this world. This may appear to mean that there are two types of kingdoms or states. The kingdoms of this world, which on their own level are legitimate, and kingdom of God, which, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. But there's a different way of thinking of that. Jesus answered that trick question about paying taxes to the emperor. He said, show me the coin for the tax. Whose head is this? The emperors. Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperors and to God the things that are God's. And he avoids her the time being, but at no point does he specify what is the emperor's. Maybe nothing. 
In fact, Jesus never paid any tax himself. The only time he had to pay a tax, he instructed St. Peter, cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to, me, give it to them for me and yourself. Mm-hmm. So he goes on and on and talks about, for instance, the episode of Jesus being tempted in the desert by the devil. And what is one of the temptations? Is that all the earth will be yours. Yeah, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus doesn't accept it. Right. And it was this was the most fascinating interpretation. Again, one of the most fascinating things I've read in some time. Because it's not... Uh, that I think this is absolutely right. And a lot of times people will go to, like, St. Paul as justifying the authority of governments. Um, I think it, it is in Romans where you see that quote, uh, mm-hmm. where the governing authorities are given their authority by the grace of God, so you have to accept their authority. Um, and But he goes, this Dr. DeSoto goes back to the Old Testament, and he says, God is a libertarian, But he lets people do as they will. He lets them say, well, do you want a stake? Go right ahead. But please, Samuel, before they proceed, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And Samuel, without wasting any time, called the people together and said, so you say you want a state. Well, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He, the state, the king, will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. Just like now. He will take your men servants and maid servants, the best of your cattle and your asses, and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Well, as you can see, the warning of God is abundantly clear. If you want a state, you want an authority, this is what's going to happen. And, and that's exactly what has happened with government. And that's, and, but my, my feeling is that we are, going back to Adam, we were created perfect and we have been falling. We're, we're, my theory is we're not evolving we are devolving. Mm. We're getting less intelligent. We're getting, I mean, you think about the ancient civilizations. I mean, even the Incas, the Mayans, the Egyptians, the the structures they built. How did they build those structures? How, right. did, they, how did they position them? How right. did they know where the stars in the sky were going to be and where the sun was going to be at what day? I mean, it's, it's a mystery. It, it is very much a mystery with what we would call ancient technology. They didn't have the the machinery that we have now to, uh, you know, build these things. And, you know, being in that fallen state, the, the further we get along in civilization, God saw that, you know, 
we've got to have governments, and and that is, I, I love that. I've I thought about that scripture forever. Mm-hmm. When the children were crying out for a king, we want to be like everybody else. Because right. in, in a sense, I think he's exactly right. God did not want his people to have a king. There was going to be one king, his son, when he came. That was going to be their king, period. It was his chosen people. But with they wanted to be like everybody else, and they wanted to have a king. And God was warning them, this is what's going to happen when you establish government. Take the mm-hmm. word king out of it. Because what's the government do? Sort of a state, they, yeah. they take more than a tenth of your crap Oh, now. yeah, definitely. A heck of a lot more. But... Mankind is so fallen, and we're 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 in such an evil state. If there weren't four governments, it would be chaos. If you went total libertarian, uh, anarchist worldwide, it would just be it, it, the world would be unlivable. And so, God, I Maybe. do think has ordained governments just to control human nature hell he took the babylonians which were a pagan nation and judged his own people with them well and the assyrians judged his own people his own people well and i'll argue back against you by continuing with professor de soto here um and again i'm just sharing uh quote anyway the state is the main instrument of evil in the state the evil one wields his power who is the evil one the devil the fallen angel. What is the goal of the evil one? To destroy the work of God. To destroy the spontaneous order of the universe, which includes the spontaneous order of the market. That is his goal. Who is our enemy? Who is the enemy of libertarians? The devil. We are up against the devil. We have our work cut out for us. And one of his chief manifestations is the state. He is hard, but not impossible to overcome, because we have an ally who is much more powerful than the devil. There is no doubt that the state is the embodiment of the devil, but I am not the one who says it. There would be no merit in that. It would be an argument from authority. Professor Huerto de Soto says God exists in the state as the embodiment of the devil. An argument from authority. I am not the one who says this. No, St. Luke the Evangelist says it. And the Pope Emeritus Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, the recent one before our current Pope, really drives it home in his very remarkable biography titled Jesus the Nazareth. In the first to be published of three volumes, there is a sublime chapter in which the author comments on each of the temptations of God the Son, that is Jesus, was subjected to. And again, this is from a recent pope, and it's fascinating. It's very much in a a disagreement with the current pope. And I know I don't have to preach to the Protestants out there about popes. Uh, But I think it's interesting when a pope, especially when he's no longer in a position of power, starts to talk and starts to preach. And so coming up, we're going to get more into this. And I didn't realize this is where we were going today. (laughs) I did not either. But the role of myth in our lives, I think, is incredibly powerful. And please do not take that as an insult or a slight. Um, That's how I kind of see where I'm going is what are the most important stories, which have the most wisdom to them, and how should we interpret these stories going forward? Um, Because that's really the project we're getting into. But... I thought we was going to talk about wrestling. Well, wrestling. R.I.P. Burhead Jones. Wrestling has its own <laughs> myths, too. I mean, didn't Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker have a heaven versus hell match? Yeah, yeah like something did. like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, the album of the night, I haven't done it yet, but it is Purple Rain. And this song, Let's Go Crazy, 
It is, um, well, Prince couldn't just come out and say devil on the air. He said, don't let the elevator bring us down. What's the elevator coming down for? Welcome back to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Alongside me tonight is Clay. That's a fitting name for what we're discussing. Exactly. Man of the Earth, that's what Clay means. Indeed, and the album of the day is Purple Rain. Of course, purple is a color for royalty. Uh, Purple is, well, a color that reminds me of Lent during my Catholic upbringing. And it rained this morning. It did. Well, I'm sure you've heard the Prince story about the Super Bowl. He said, Prince, we got a forecast here and we think it's going to rain. We should, you know, construct a ceiling or something. And all he said back is, can you make it rain harder? <laughs> and they went on to do an incredible show. And again, that's another guy who kind of created myths around himself. And, you know, I've been sitting here talking from this uh, piece by, he's a Spanish uh, PhD, Dr. Huerto de Soto. And he's talking about God as libertarian. And what conclusion do I come to, he writes? I come to the conclusion that a Catholic or Christian must be a libertarian on social issues. I go even further. A Catholic must support private property anarchy. Indeed, we have just heard a defense of private property. True economic science shows the only way a stateless system could possibly work is through spontaneous market order and the private provision of all public goods. That is the highest state of civilization conceivable. The embodiment of the kingdom of God to the greatest extent humanly possible here on earth. Private property anarchy, or if you prefer what we call libertarian capitalism, though that term frightens uh, John Paul II, the Pope he has been citing earlier in this speech. Um, And I'm going to stop here because he, Dr. DeSoto here is talking about how we shouldn't deify human reason. And how we shouldn't try to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. And I agree... And we certainly shouldn't do that through a state or through a government, because it will take your sons and daughters. It will take the fruits of your labor for its own. But also, I think trying to tear down states to bring out the kingdom of God might have the same effect. That I I think we should understand that human reason is limited. Our ability to know things is limited. So we should have more of a, well, a tempered approach to 
living out our lives. I think the kingdom of God is more found in our hearts and what we believe rather than any sort of outside project we do with the world, maybe other than loving others. Well, and what that does, Joey, it discounts the power. If you're going to look at this from the the aspect that, that God is all-powerful, and then you say, well, we, as the United States of America, right. we've got to bring this about, then you're saying God's not all-powerful. We have to have a part in it. And I think that's the... Mankind, that's what is in in us. We have enough of, because God breathed breath into us, the mm. breath of life. And I think we have that desire to want to be a part of something. But if you, if, if you make it happen, then it wasn't God making it happen. Right. It was you making it happen. And I, I don't, I can't get over that. It's like the people that are fixated on the United States has got to stand with Israel. We've got to take up for Israel. We've got to protect Israel. Well, doggone it. If God can't protect, if, if, and this is a big a big air quotes, and I don't believe this, but if the nation that we call Israel right now is God's chosen people, he don't need our dad blame help to take care of his own people. He can take care of them. Hmm. If you believe the Bible, he's to, he made the freaking sun stand still for an entire day right. one time. Right. Well, he can take care of his people. He doesn't need our help, and and that's just I think that's where we want to be a part of. It. We think we've got to help. We've got to do something. I think, like we were saying in the break, I think God originally wanted us to be one hundred percent libertarian anarchist. Is you go, you take care of your family. You take care of your family, Joey. You take care of your family, Clay. I'll take care of my family, and, and live. And if you want to trade, you and I want to trade. Yeah. Fine. If we don't want to trade, fine. Take care of yourself. But I think we've, we're just in such a, a fallen state. There's so many of us, and especially with the welfare state, because yeah. government is trying to be God now providing because... It's a bad replacement for true charity. If you're a true libertarian, a true anarchist like that, you're living out there by yourself... There's nobody to provide for you. There's nobody to look to. Well, he he makes it clear in the speech, but by anarchist, he means literally uh, no public authority. Nobody gets to claim, and, I'm speaking for God and, and to do these violent things. And I'm no speaking public for the assistance as well. Right. But you, where you assist people is through trading or charity. Exactly. Is and, by providing. And I think... We're missing something when we create these large systems that take from others and give to others, and the people that are being taken from and the people that are receiving never meet. It causes resentment. Well, and don't you find, like, when you've done charitable things for people, that it's more than, oh, I gave them something to eat or I gave them a shoulder to cry on, somebody an ear to listen to them. It's You create a connection more than you gave them a material benefit. Well, and it, it's like this, Joey. We we gripe and complain. We were just griping and complaining about taxes a while ago. Yeah. You know, because it, it, it is very frustrating when you get paid $100 and you end up with $62 in your paycheck. Yeah. However, if you went and saw 
a little child that didn't have anything to eat, right. would you have any problem taking ten dollars out of your wallet and giving them no. some money to go get something to eat? No. That's a, that's an excellent point. We don't see it because it goes through a third party. It goes through the government, and then we get mad at them because they waste so much money. Well, and I think people don't get the benefit of oh this is coming directly from somebody that's the other side of it they're just like well here's here's my check that comes every month they don't see that was joey clark that just took ten dollars out of his pocket and gave it to me to get something to eat they see it as the they just see it as the government is providing yeah and and it's it's become i think this big a nasty fiction in our lives and he said the one part of this speech i agree with is that uh, well, we've created a golden calf out of government that we've deified human reason and our scientific understanding of the world and we can wipe away every tear and make sure nobody ever goes through a hard time in life if we just have enough power and organization through government. And I think that's a very dangerous road to go down. It may not end with the same disasters that you saw at the beginning of the 20th century, but it could still end up to where people are, well, sort of uh, longing for security and comfort rather than a positive peace and true brotherhood and love and charity. And so when they long for only security and comfort, what do we do? We tend to look and find who are the people making me uncomfortable? Who are the people that are making me insecure? And we blame other people for our problems rather than saying, well, maybe it's my longing for these things and this idea that everything should always work out, that's the actual problem. That instead we do the best we can looking out for each other. And that's where I want government and governance to be as local as possible and as voluntary as possible. And it's, it's necessary that you give up your freedoms in exchange for security. Well, and I'm wondering now who this person on the phone is. Hello, who's this? You're on the air. You know what that is? The sound of silence. I guess we kept them on hold so long that they went mute. But uh, call back if you like. But I, I find this conversation fascinating because I tend to get nervous whenever somebody says we should do this or that political thing because of God. Um, Drives me crazy. Whether it's more power to the government or less power to the government. I would say God is such a libertarian that he doesn't intervene in that regard. He says, well, you're going to do what you're going to do, humans, while you have free will. But it brings me to, uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens would have these debates with all these theists, and some of them are fun and interesting, and Hitchens was certainly an imperfect messenger in a lot of regards. He's very militant. And he makes clear he's not an, just an atheist, he's an anti-theist. He didn't really like religion at all. But there was this change, and I was telling Barron this a few weeks ago, in Hitchens, it's right when he's very sick, like he's gone through chemo with his throat cancer, he's completely bald, he's sort of coughing in between his sentences, and he's talking to a school of... Uh, a, bunch of young kids at a religious inspired college i think freshman is who he's talking to and he makes a turn where he says it's not so much about just religion but at any sort of structure you build that is an unquestionable authority i went oh that's interesting 
Because the question he kept being asked is, if religion poisons everything, what about the tyrants of the 20th century? Well, and then he'll go on make an argument, well, Hitler wasn't really an atheist because of all the weird pagan stuff Hitler wanted to bring back. The Japanese were an atheist. They were, they, their emperor was literally a god on earth. And then he dealt with the Stalin regime, the communists in Russia, and said, yeah, officially they're atheists, but look at how they've set up their government and how they regard Stalin. He's unquestionable. His image is everywhere. He's creating all these, quote-unquote, miracles. God on earth. Yes. And when the state becomes God on earth, whether it is marching violently and fulfilling courage and justice on earth, or it's sort of this humble thing that wants to make sure nobody suffers, I think we lose something about our communities. And it is really the story of the Tower of Babel, that we're building these incredible things. They're not literal towers, but these things like the Internet. We're building these incredible systems, and instead of saying we don't really know where it's going, and let's act with humility towards these things, there's a lot of hubris in this world, whether it's somebody running a government or some innovators who say, oh, we can create paradise on Earth. And I think that's where you go wrong every time. You will not create... We are denied paradise on this side of the Garden of Eden. And whether or not you regard the Genesis as a myth, Genesis as the absolute gospel truth, that's an interesting conversation, but to me it's more... Well, the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. I think the stories that we tell, again, folks, are the most important things. And we need to understand the power of narrative and be flexible with our narrative without giving up our principles. That I see this in politics on these airwaves and, again, talking to old acquaintances and old classmates. That people are sitting there shouting over each other, here's my narrative, here's my story, here's how I see the world. They don't hear the other person. Right. It's a shouting match of who's going to impose whose narrative on other people. If you make too much noise, you can't hear the other side. And that's uh, talking about religion. And I'm not one of these Protestants that just hates the Catholic Church and think, oh, y'all are going to hell because y'all are in the Catholic Church. I don't. Uh, But that's... When you get into conversations like that, it's hard to have one with most people because they are so dogmatic, they're not even willing to listen. I will listen to anything, and I am willing to admit I don't know everything. You and I have had some wonderful discussions, and we are way polar opposites on a lot of things, but we can be friends and, and not shout at each other and talk over one another. But without the conversation... How would you, and I've changed my mind on some things, and I'm sure over your lifetime, you've changed your mind on a lot of things. I have. Well, here's the, for instance, there's this uh, young woman who is now a mother. She was in my class. Her name's Rachel. And I remember several years ago, she brought up something about the welfare state, and I got kind of, it wasn't true shouting at the top of my lungs, but it was not uh, a friendly discussion. It was me going, I know what's right, and you're just wrong. And Saturday, she asked me, well, Jerry, where are you at now? And I said, well, I don't know. And I don't want to really save the world anymore. I just want to try to understand the world to the best of my ability, find what the best stories are for understanding the world from all the different faiths and approaches to understanding the world, and make friends along the way. 
And really, that's my mission statement these days, folks. I'm not trying to save the world, tell you what's right. I'm trying to understand it one wow. hour at a time.